As we come to the preaching of God's Word, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke once again, to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. Luke 18, verses 1 through 17. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, again for your Word, and thank you for the truths that are revealed within. Especially thank you for the truths about Jesus Christ that we come to know about. And Lord, thank you for his words that give life to all who believe. And Father, we pray that you would cause your word now to be, uh, to be proclaimed in such a way that it would take root in the hearts of those who hear. Father, may your spirit go before us and convict us of these truths that we're going to read about and study. And help us, Father, to shape our lives, to make us more like Christ. Make us more like the disciples of Christ, whom you, whom we want to be like, and whom you've called us and saved us to be. Refine your church through the preaching of your word. Shape us, Lord. Mold us. Help us to be more effective and equipped to make disciples of Christ. May your spirit teach us now, Lord. And use, use this time, use me, Lord, to proclaim your word so that your people would see more of Jesus and would love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to simply start our time in this kind of introducing the sermon just by kind of reflecting where we are at now. Uh, it's now uh, a little over six months since uh, SF Bible has been um, following the uh, the state and county's guidance to shelter in place, uh, we've uh, done that because of for the sake of public health, and we've all moved our services online. Even now, I, I'm literally preaching in an empty room, um, and uh, it's quite different from uh, where we were six months ago. And while the elders of the church believe that uh, God's word does not forbid us from from conducting our worship services online, virtually, in this way, we are very much aware uh, that church was never meant to be this way, permanently. Here, me preaching to an empty room while you sitting on your couch or sitting on your lawn chair, watching a screen with maybe your, by yourself or maybe with your family or friends. Uh, that This is not really... Uh, the kind of church that God intended. We need uh, the personal interaction with one another uh, that comes usually after the services, that comes with our interaction. Uh, and we, we've, been, we've hoped to do that through our other online ministries, through classes and uh, through uh, other fellowship groups. But it's just hard to imitate uh, the, the opportunities that we have. And we can do it, but it's just not as effective as when we're together. As much as we tried to have ministry online, we recognize that the limits um, that it imposes upon our ability to involve ourselves deeply into one another's lives. And our elders, as well as our return team, have been uh, wanting and working hard to return to in-person services as soon as possible. But as you know, and if you know of any of the return team, if you ask them, there's a lot of work that has to be done. 
There's much that they're going, that they're doing behind the scenes that we're not aware about. Uh, we thank God for every every one of those return team members. We thank God for the some of you saints who have come alongside them to provide your expertise. Their desire, as their planning, is simply to prepare us for the time when we may reopen our services for in-person worship. We want to have services that are God-honoring, that pursue both spiritual as well as physical health. We understand, and I think hopefully you understand, that we, we cannot uh, completely have, a, have a completely risk-free uh, service safe from COVID-19. It wasn't the case even before uh, our pandemic. And so our, hopefully just kind of giving the sense of understanding of, of where we're at right now after six months and, and helping, hoping that you realize, just as some of you, and I think hopefully many of you, is that we need to be, we need to be continually praying. This is a task that though involves men and women needs God. Needs God to go before us, to grant us success, to help us control COVID, to help us to work through and navigate uh, many of the the complex uh, matters that the return team has been working through and thinking about. And even our elders have been discussing Being in prayer for us to allow to return to in-person services. But even then, that's not the end of it all. Because there will be so many other returns that will happen. There will be other returns to add further services, increase capacity. There will be eventually be the return of our Christian education ministries, our, our, up, our adult Sunday school class, as well as our children's ministries. Just think about all that. Each of them reflects, it's like a school, you know. And look, look how difficult schools are, are to returning. There'll be the return of fellowship groups. There'll be the return eventually of special events, all big church events, all in due time, all with appropriate precautions taken. And so you can imagine much prayer is needed. Because while man makes his plans, but God is the one who will direct our steps. So we need to be praying. And just appreciate all of you who have been praying uh, for us, and especially though you let us know or you let the return team. I don't know if, <laughs> if you emailed the return team recently, just emailed them, let them know that you're praying for them, and they would really appreciate that, I'm sure. But as we wait and as we pray for our return to in-person worship, the scriptures teach us to pray in light of a, a greater future return. Uh, you know I'm not talking about your retirement, you know, your retirement uh, account either. We're talking about the return of Christ. That is the future greater return that all of us as Christians are looking to. All of us should be looking to that return when Jesus Christ comes back and comes to establish his kingdom here on earth. Today's passage touches on the subject of, of prayer as disciples of Christ await his return. And in the big picture, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to be prepared for his coming kingdom. In the preceding chapter, chapter 17, Jesus had taught his disciples that his future kingdom would come unexpectedly, would come suddenly, and it would come irrevocably. 
It would be a time of terrible judgment, as well as a time of tremendous deliverance. And those promises were 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years have passed and Jesus has not returned. And I wonder, and perhaps you wonder too, are Jesus' disciples even still looking for His return? The Scriptures speak of it, but do we think about it? Is it in our minds? Is it in our prayers? Do we truly still pray for it? Our Heavenly Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Or are we too caught up with looking to our own life here on earth, as well as the treasures of this world, that we pray more about our earthly kingdom than God's kingdom. In verse 8 of this passage, Jesus asks, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will anyone be trusting in Jesus, be believing in Jesus when He comes? Will anyone be looking for Him when He returns? Will there be any believers when Christ comes again? As we'll look at this passage a little more closely, faith is a dominant theme. It runs through these 17 verses, these two parables in one event. And we learn something about the characteristic of the faith that is needed of, Je- of Jesus' disciples as we await His return. We learn three qualities of those who will be ready for when Christ returns. Or even another way to put it, uh, as an outline for us today, three characteristics of faith that mark those to whom the kingdom of God belongs. So we're going to look through these passages. It's actually three different pericopes, three, two parables, one event. But they all kind of have this uh, common theme of the kind of faith that we are to have as we await Christ's coming kingdom. Jesus' disciples, number one, we learn in verse one, we learn in verse one to eight, that Jesus' disciples are to maintain persistent faith in God's justice, persistent or ceaseless faith in God's justice. And what makes both the parables that we're going to look at in this today stand out in this passage is that Luke prefaces each one with the reason for the parable which is unusual compared to other parables. And in each preface, Luke warns of a spiritual danger that disciples face as we await the return of Christ. Let's take a look at the first danger or first peril of this in verse 1 of chapter 18. We read this. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Jesus here is telling a parable to them, Luke records, which refers back to the disciples, if we go back to chapter 17, verse 22. And so therefore, since the reference to disciples back in 17, 22, this connects this lesson to Jesus' instructions regarding the future coming of his kingdom. This is a a, a continuation of his instruction to his disciples. Jesus' purpose in telling this parable is to encourage disciples to pray always. To pray at all times. Not in the sense of praying around the clock, you know, like, you know, kind of have those praying around the clock, pray 24, covered 24 hours a day, you know, everybody gets a, an hour and everybody signs up all day, every day, 24-7, you know. But this is about praying regularly throughout one's days. The wording that is used here implies this, is, this prayer is not an optional practice, but it's a, a necessary practice. 
of the Christian life. And prayer is necessary because there is an inherent danger for believers who are waiting for the return of Christ. And that danger is that we might lose heart. Jesus is encouraging his disciples to pray because following Christ will lead inevitably in this world to persecution. And many are going to be tempted in the face of persecution to lose heart and to give up on their faith. And this comes out in the context as we'll look in a little bit because in the parable as well as Jesus' explanation, people are praying for a specific thing. They're praying for justice. And you only pray for justice when there is injustice. And the injustice is, the pers- is implied is the persecution as those who are followers of Christ. You see, as Christians who live in a fallen world, we are going to face opposition to our faith. Jesus said himself in John chapter 12, verse 50, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We're going to face injustice in this world. In fact, even in these days of COVID-19, you may have read or heard about some Christians who have been fined or arrested for their conviction to worship and sing praises to God. You may disagree that, about the appropriateness of gathering in those gatherings, but, they, but you, I hope you don't disagree that they have a right, they have an obligation to worship God, and that is their conviction to worship, that they should be allowed to freely do so. More so, our brothers and sisters around the world are losing their lives and families due to religious persecution. You see, until the Lord returns, persecution and injustice will be a part of the believer's life in this world. And so thus, we need to persistently pray because the danger to lose heart is real. Even now, even in this this mild suffering of being under COVID-19, I guarantee you, when we come back all together, there will be some of us who don't make it through. There will be some of us who have lost heart, who have realized that, you know, I don't need God anymore. I'm not going to worship God anymore. I don't need the church anymore. I hope I'm wrong. Jesus tells then a parable to encourage us to keep praying that we might not lose heart. And that's a parable that he tells in verses 2 to 5. Tells this parable, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection for my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. Jesus tells here of two people. One, an unrighteous, uncompassionate judge. He neither feared God nor he respected man. He was probably a civil court judge, man of some power, some authority. But sadly, he wielded that authority for his own personal interests, not for the good of his community. The second character here is is a widow. She is without a family, any family to help her. She is in need here of legal protection from an opponent. Literally, her request is she's requesting justice from this judge. 
the Mosaic Law had guided the Israelites to defend widows, to defend orphans, as those among the most helpless in society. But this judge was unwilling to help her. And because she kept, but yet, because she kept coming to him again and again, day after day, the unrighteous judge basically gives her the justice that she seeks because he's, he's looking, out, looking out for his own interests. He says, ah, oh, she's just tiring me out. I'm just going to give her what she wants. Not because he cares for her at all. And Jesus then makes his point in verse 6 to 8. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus here makes an argument from lesser to greater, right? He says, consider the unrighteous judge. Consider what he just said about this widow and why he gave her, why he gives her the, the justice that she seeks. He gives justice to this widow who constantly appealed to him, though he doesn't even care for her at all. He had no inclination initially. How much more likely then, Jesus argues, will God give justice to his elect who constantly cry to him, especially because he cares for his chosen people. How much more likely? Jesus says, you can depend on it, that he will more likely do it. And he comforts his disciples who continually look to him for justice in a world of just, injustice. He comforts them in verse 8, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. God is a God of justice, and God will bring justice quickly for the, His people, His chosen ones, who cry to Him day and night. His point is that he will, God will act soon. Justice is near. Justice is coming. And even though for us today, reading these words, 2,000 years have passed, with many martyrs and countless lesser injustices that have not been punished in this time in this world but nevertheless God's justice is near and is coming it is coming quickly God has not forgotten his elect he will send his son back to bring justice and deliverance when the son of man comes We think God's delaying because from our finite minds, 2,000 years seems like a long time. But we forget that God is infinite and eternal. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3, 8, 9 to give us perspective on this. There, Paul, there Peter writes, Do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, while it may seem to us finite human beings that the Lord is slow in returning, Peter writes here that no, the, for the Lord, it's one day, a thousand years is like a day in his sight. It's, it's, not, it's just a drop in the bucket. 
And we, we don't get that because we only live 70, 80 years on this earth. But I guarantee you, and I hope you understand eventually, uh, those of us who are in Christ, when we are with God for 10,000 years, as the hymn Amazing Grace talks about, when we look back upon these 70 or 80 years that we've had to wait for God's justice, when we look back upon the moment when Christ did return, we will say, we will see then that that justice came quickly. It came soon. And it comes when Christ returns. Even in this encouragement from this uh, Peter's word, is that as long as God delays in returning, he is in, you can be sure that he is bringing about the salvation of all who will repent. So therefore, we ought to keep praying, seeking the justice that will come when his kingdom comes, while knowing that any delay, at least from our perspective, is for the purpose of him saving his elect. Brothers and sisters, he is using your injustice, your suffering, to bring about the salvation of others, as it testifies to others of our faith in Christ. Now, Jesus adds to his promise with his concern at the end of verse 8 that we kind of began uh, even uh, the sermon with earlier. See, we don't need to worry about God having any problems fulfilling his promises. Because the problem is really with man. As time goes on, as the world grows more wicked, as persecution increases, Jesus asks, will there be anyone left who believes in him? Will Jesus find faith on earth when he shows up? And it is a, it's, a, it's a challenge to us as a church. It's an encouragement for us as a church. It's a reminder for us that we need to be faithfully and prayerfully making disciples of Jesus Christ. There will be no faith when Jesus returns if we are not making disciples and sharing with others about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, how he came and died for our, for our sins. At all times, especially now, especially in this year, we must make Jesus' message our message. We do not preach Trump and we do not preach Biden. We preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen? I can almost hear you saying amen. We call people to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter who is in the the White House. In this way, we will be ready for his return. Because we will know Christ and the salvation that is in him. That's our quality number one. First characteristic is that people of God are going to be having a persistent faith, looking to God's justice that is going to be coming when Christ returns. But there's a second characteristic of faith of those who await his return, and that is in verses 9 to 14, that we are to have a, a humble faith in God's mercy. A humble faith in God's mercy. Once again, just like in the previous parable, Luke reveals another peril that believers face as we await Christ's return. The peril is recorded for us in verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. 
Luke informs us that Jesus told this parable to some, basically to some self-righteous people. He's telling this parable to those who have confidence in their own standing before God based upon their own merits, their own deeds. And even as we read this, our minds tend to immediately think about whom? It's probably not ourselves. But we tend to think about the Pharisees, the scribes. Even as we've been reading through, studying through Luke, we've seen the Pharisee scribes act in this very same fashion. But Luke doesn't mention them by name here. And that's intentional. So that when we listen to this parable, we don't think about others who may need this truth, but rather we think about ourselves who need this truth. And I'll say it again, I've said it before, the Pharisees were the Bible-believing and Bible-observing people of their day. They were the SF Bible of those days. They were the Jerusalem Bible Church kind of people. And as the Bible-believing and observing people of our day, their dangers are our dangers. Their temptations are our temptations. Yes, so we understand that we understand and preach the gospel here, and we may come to, to Jesus as sinners in need of a Savior. But as the years grow on, and many of us have walked with the Lord some 20, 30, 40, 50 years, as we've grown in sanctification, hopefully we've grown in godliness, we've grown in Christlikeness, Sometimes it is easy to think that our obedience, our righteous deeds, the things that we've done for the Lord are the result of our own doing, right? We can become prideful. We can begin to view with with contempt even others who don't believe in Jesus, with others who are living sinful lives, or even others who vote differently from us. Most dangerous of all is if we start then believing that God somehow welcomes us into His kingdom because of our own righteous deeds. And when we start thinking like that, this parable is for you and me. The parables in verses 10 and 13. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Again, we have two characters, two men who went to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, uh, and in Jesus' days, the Pharisees were considered basically the model worshipers. They were the, they were the kind of the, the, the good examples that Israel was to follow. The Jewish historian Josephus described them as a, a class of Jews who considered themselves the godliest of the nation and the most rigorous followers of the law. But the other man who was praying that day in the temple was a tax collector. We already know, too, about these, tra- these, these traitorous men who'd served the Romans, the Gentiles, in collecting taxes, often excessively, from their own people. But the parable then continues with the prayers of these two men. The Pharisee's prayer, he blesses and praises God. But he blesses and praises God because he's not like the sinners of the world. He praises God because of who he is in comparison to others. He praises God because he's godlier than other people. 
He hasn't broken the law like the swindlers and like the unjust people, like the adulterers, or even by the nearby tax collector. In fact, he boasts or he, he praises God that he's done many good deeds. He fasts twice a week, in fact, and he pays tithes. That's 10% of all that he gets. In other words, he goes above and beyond what regular worshipers do. And while his prayer does begin with the perfunctory acknowledgement of God, if you look closely at his prayer, he moves quickly to himself, his holiness, his superiority, his righteous deeds. It is I, I, I. He is boastful and he's confident of his own righteousness before God. But when we see and look at the tax collector's prayer, we see a totally different attitude. He prays with a completely different posture and heart. He stands away. It's probably farthest away from the inner, uh, from the inner courts. He doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And all the while as he's praying, he's beating his breast. All of this reflecting a recognition of his own shame his own sinfulness, his own unworthiness before God. His prayer is short. It's not a long prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, the sinner. His prayer is a plea for mercy, focused not on himself, but on God. He acknowledged that he is a sinner. Notice He's a sinner not in comparison to others, but he's a sinner in the sight of God. That's the parable. Jesus then explains and makes his point in verse 14. Jesus says, verse 14, I tell you, this man, that is this latter man, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus reveals that the the tax collector went home justified by God. That is, he went home declared right before God. He had a right standing before God. This sinner, this traitorous man, this greedy man. But his humble prayer, seeking God's mercy, acknowledging his own sinfulness, Seeking God's mercy, not on the merit of his own, but on the, simply casting himself on the mercy of God, was received by the Lord. But in contrast, the Pharisee, who prayed proudly and boastfully, was not justified. He was not declared right. And the implication of this is that in the day of judgment, the tax collector who was justified will be delivered when the Son of Man comes, while the Pharisee, who was not justified, will be judged. Then Jesus states a, a basic principle that we've already seen back in earlier in Luke 14, 11, that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. See, God looks for humble faith. He looks for a humility uh, in people that recognize who they are, that they are sinners, that there's no reason to boast before Him, that we're at His mercy As we read in our call to worship in Isaiah 66, verse 2, God declares that to this one I will look. He is not looking for people that do stuff for him, that build houses for him. He's looking for one who is humble and contrite of spirit, one who trembles at God's word. 
See, those who arrogantly think that they are good on their own merit will be disappointed when Christ returns. Let me ask you just simply this question. It's called the diagnostic question. I think all of us need to answer it every once in a while. If you were to die today and stand before God, and He were to ask you why He should allow you entrance into His kingdom, how would you answer? What would you say? If you start listing all the good deeds that you have done, or maybe listing all the bad deeds that you've not done, well, I've not murdered anyone. I've not really, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, broken into someone's house. You know, all these kind of things. I'm not, you know, really hurt a lot of people. You know, just because you're, you think you're better than the average person. If you start kind of listing your deeds that you, you based upon your deeds, then you're basically trusting in your own righteousness. Or if you start listing, well, I was born in a Christian family. I went to a, I went to a good Bible teaching church. I was a member there. Uh, I served in, in, that, in that church faithfully. Then you're basing upon what you do. You're basing upon who you've identified with. A church, people, other people. And though this church is a great, you should be a member of this church if you're, if you're, if you're part of this church body. That's not what saves. That will not pass God's judgment. Instead, I hope that your answer will be something along the lines of this. Father, I am not worthy to enter into your kingdom. I am a sinner. And I know I don't deserve it. But I appeal to you for your mercy. For I have placed my faith in your Son, whom you have sent to die on the cross for my sins. Something along those lines. Somehow, your plea for God's mercy will be based upon your trust, humble trust, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For it is only in God's mercy that you are allowed in, not on your merits. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's one final characteristic then of the kind of faith that mark those who are ready for his return. We find that in verse 15 to 17. And that is, we're to be marked by a dependent faith in God's provision. A dependent faith in God's provision. Verse 15, 17. And we'll just kind of read the rest of, this, of the passage now. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. You see, this is uh, the wording here, and they were bringing, it seems, imply this is just a continuation of that, of that, uh, of the, 
this teaching time, right after his teaching of parables, people were then bringing babies to him. Kind of after the teacher, you know, comes, you want to meet the meet the uh, the preacher. Uh, well, the people would say, "Well, I want my baby to meet this uh, uh, Jesus Jesus Christ." And so they they want him to to touch them, and the idea is that he would touch them and, and bless them, pray for them, and bless them. But as they were doing this, it was the disciples were were thinking that, "Oh, this is." This is, this is not important. These little children, in, in that society, they didn't really think of children as being that important. So they were kind of like, they began rebuking these people who were bringing their children to him. But Jesus then corrects his disciples. And he calls them and says, let the children come to me. I don't want to hinder them from coming to me. And this is one of those great verses that just kind of reminds us of, of how Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loves them and, and uh, and uh, this, uh, this should be the theme verse of every children's ministry uh, and of every church. He explains why, uh, why these children are, are so precious, why he welcomes them. Because there's something about them that is reflective of the kind of people that enter into his kingdom. He explains, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, to people who are like these children. Jesus used the ch- children as an illustration of the kind of faith that is characteristic of kingdom citizens, of those who are going to enter into his kingdom. Those kingdom people are like children who have a simple, dependent faith upon the Lord. When you think about children and the kind of faith that they have, particularly in their parents, you don't have to, children don't have to understand everything about their parents before they depend upon their parents, right? Especially when they're born, they don't know anything about their parents. They didn't know. They just kind of. They might be familiar that these people. Maybe they kind of have a, in their brain some kind of range of their voice and their maybe the smells or I don't know. Uh, but there's very little they understand about their parents. But nevertheless, they depend upon. They look to their parents to provide for what they need. They just know to look to their parents for the provision of their needs. And what's more, their parents know what they need even before they can ask, even before they do ask. And their parents will regularly provide for it for them, and the children simply receive it. In the same way, believers are to simply receive the kingdom of God like a child. They don't have to understand everything about God or even how He provides or, or even things about Him, things that are hard to understand like His origin or His beginnings. He doesn't have a beginning. They just, disciples of Christ just know to look to Him for the provision of their salvation because that's what the Word of God reveals. If you want to be saved from the judgment that is coming when Christ returns, you only have to have a simple, dependent faith in God's provision of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. You don't understand how, he is, how Jesus is 100% man and 100% God? That's all right. You don't understand. You, you, don't, you can still be saved. You don't understand how he can make the universe in six days simply by speaking things, in, out of, speaking things into creation? That's okay. You can still be saved whether you don't, understand, if you don't understand that. You don't know how he is sovereign over all things and yet holds you accountable for your actions? That's cool. You can still be saved. You simply have to have a childlike, dependent faith that looks to God because you know that God gives salvation what you need and He has it and you ask for it and He will, and, re- and He will, and he has, He's given it and if you, and if, as you ask for it, you simply need to receive it. You need to receive the gift of His kingdom and really to receive the kingdom of God is to receive the King first and foremost. The King that is His Son, Jesus Christ.
God has abundantly provided for our salvation through Jesus Christ. And you don't have to understand everything about Him. You simply have to understand that He is God's Son who came and died in your place for the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. And simply through repenting of your sins and turning in faith to Jesus Christ, and you will you be forgiven and receive Christ and receive entrance into the kingdom of God. And on top of that, you receive all that you need for that day and for every day in between until then. I'll just end simply this morning with uh, several questions for us to think about for our, discu- for our uh, meditation. Are you ready for Christ's return? Are you one who is looking for His return? Hopefully that's reflected somehow in your prayer life. What's more, how does your prayer life reflect a trust in God in a world of injustice? There's a lot of, uh, a lot of dis- demands for justice recently this past week. How does that affect your prayer life as you seek God for justice in a world of injustice? Thirdly, uh, what is your trust in for your salvation and entrance into His kingdom? We talked about that. It ought to be in Jesus. But if you think about it, what, how did you answer that diagnostic question? Who is your trust in? What is your trust in? And then lastly, uh, one last question. How does your faith grow? Hopefully our faith is growing while maintaining childlike trust in the Lord. How's your faith growing? Yes, you need to have childlike faith. Or is it still childlike faith even? Do you still have that childlike trust in the Lord always? Well, I hope this encourages you, brothers and sisters, as you we await for Christ's return. And Jesus said, His his coming is quick. Is coming quickly. God will bring justice for His people. And for all who are looking and li- for justice while living in an unjust world, let us look to God. Let us look to Jesus Christ. For He will bring justice for all in due time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, God. For Jesus Christ. Thank you for not only sending him once to die on the cross and rise from the dead for our sins and for our salvation, but thank you, Lord, for the promise that he will return again and he will come to establish the kingdom that you have promised, the kingdom that is ours through faith and hope in Jesus Christ and him alone. God, help us. To who help us who live in an unjust world to learn to have a faith that does not grow weary, that does not give up. Even as we think about what's going on in the world at large, we really are living really <laughs> response for our own lives. And each of us wrestle with our own faith to continue trusting and continue walking, continue being faithful disciple makers of Jesus Christ to your, for your glory. Lord, guard us from losing heart. Help us be men and women who are persistent in prayer, even as we trust you for your justice. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be people who simply 
continue to maintain a humble faith before you, knowing that our acceptance by you is not based upon any of our deeds that you have produced in us in Christ. But Lord, our, our acceptance by you is simply a gift of your mercy through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for allowing us to receive Christ by faith. And we do pray for anyone out there who has not yet received the gift of your Son, that today, Father, you would help them to understand that the only way into your kingdom, the only way to experience the justice that you promise in a world of injustice is through faith in Christ, your Son. And whether you bring justice in this world or not, you will eventually, uh, at least in our lifetimes, you will ultimately bring justice for all. Everyone who is wicked will get what they deserve. And God, we thank you because we know that we are counted among that wicked except for the gift of your Son. Thank you, Father, for your mercy. Thank you for revealing it to us in due time. And God, we pray that you would use us to be humble prayer warriors, humble servants who go out into your world and tell others Appeal to others on your behalf, telling them that there is hope in Christ and Him alone in this world of injustice. That there is, <clears throat> that before we can even worry about the injustice out there, we need to deal with the injustice that we each of us are guilty of when we, re- when we rebelled against you when we turned away from you and went our own ways. And Lord, thank you for making the provision of covering for our injustice in your Son. Help us as a church to remember this, to make the message of Christ our message, to proclaim Him alone, crucified for our sins. And Lord, may you cause your church to grow in these days. We pray, Father, that until you return, help us to eventually return back to our own services, that we will worship you together, that we experience the fellowship, the intimate fellowship that we can have in person. God, go before us and grant us success. Grant us wisdom. Grant us courage to do the right thing. And help us, Father, always to live for your glory. Increase our love, even as we come reminded again of your love for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.